the heart is not a metronome. Your cardiovascular system has to respond to trillions of processes at any given second. We know that heart rate variability or that change between successive heartbeats is going to be indicative as to how well your body can adjust to stressors. Welcome to the Seamlund Podcast. I'm your host Seamlund and our guest today is Dr. Jay Wiles. Jay is a doctor of clinical psychology and nutritional psychology consultant. He's also the co-founder of Hanu Health, which is a platform for measuring HRV or heart rate variability. In this episode, we're going to talk about why HRV is so crucial for overall health and how to increase it for better stress resilience. This episode is brought to you by Bond Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. My favorite light and sleep foundation companies, Blue Blocks, has rebranded themselves as Bond Charge. They're now involved with a huge range of evidence-based products to improve your wellness and life in every way. Their extensive range of premium wellness products helps you to sleep better, perform better, have more energy, recover faster, balance your hormones, and reduce inflammation. My favorites are their red light light bulbs because they can be used to create a melatonin-friendly environment in your bedroom by shining only red and not blue or green light waves that will reduce your sleep quality. After starting to use these red light light bulbs, I find it much easier to fall asleep and feel less awake before bed. If you want to try out these amazing products that are the cornerstones to my most optimal sleep, then head over to bondcharge.com forward slash seamlund and use the code seam15 to save 15%. Jay, welcome to the show. Hey man, thanks for having me on Seam. Yeah, I'm uh, glad to have you on the show and uh, I think many people might uh, recognize your voice as being one of the co-hosts of uh, Ben Greenfield's uh, podcast as well and I've been on your podcast. <laughs> I've been on your podcast as a guest as well, and I think, you know, we'll be having a good um, conversation about HRV, recovery, and just stress resilience, those kind of things. Uh, but a bit before we get into that, like where or how, how did you, you know, get into health and wellness in the first place? Yeah, you know, health and wellness was an interesting journey for me because I always had a focus on athletics and because I grew up as an athlete. And so I was a multi-sport athlete uh, growing up in high school, played both baseball and lacrosse. Uh, so one maybe less physical sport, one really physical sport. And I was always really tall. So I'm six foot five and I was always taller than basically everybody in high school, but I was always underweight. Um, so I was a really skinny guy. And when I got to college, I was six foot five, maybe even six foot four, maybe I grew an inch in college, but I weighed like 170 pounds, 175 pounds. So I was basically just like a stick in college. And so for me, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to like enjoy this college experience, maybe find a few ladies here and there, probably should pack on a few pounds. So I got really interested in working out and athletics, um, kind of like married with that. For me, it was always just like, well, I was good at a sport. I had natural talent in it. But I never really focused on nutrition and never focused on, you know, exercise. Like there's just one of the things that I worried about in high school. But in college, when I was trying to put on weight and put on muscle, I just began to think about them. So I gained a lot of weight when I was in college. I went from 170 pounds, 175 to I graduated college four years later at 265. So I was six foot five, 265. I was a really large individual. Now, if anybody is kind of wondering how I put on basically 100 pounds in college, well, it was eating way too much. Um, it was a lot of working out. And then there was also some, let's say, secondary things that were sprinkled in there that helped people to put on muscle maybe a little bit faster than they, what they might put on if you get my drift. So a lot, a lot of things going on. 
And what happened was, is yeah, I gained a lot of muscle. Like I felt like I was in quote unquote good shape. But then I got to graduate school and I majored in psychology. So I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I ended up doing a bachelor's in psychology, um, two masters within the field of psychology. And then my doctoral work was in psychology as well. When I got to graduate school, I found that while in college, I was able to kind of get by, like, you know, I studied and worked hard, but it wasn't nearly as difficult as competing with other graduate students. And I just noticed that, man, my head was just like not able to concentrate. Like I didn't feel good at 265. Things just weren't great. I was, I had a little bit of extra adipose tissue, if you will, and things just weren't feeling great. And so I began, it wasn't until probably a few years into graduate school, I finally was like, okay, enough is enough. Like I've got like all of this brain fog. Like I just do not feel well. Like if I want to like do well in school, like I really need to focus on true health and wellness. And so I did, I focused, I got really into the world of like, I guess it was back then around 2014 ish or so, uh, you know, like the paleo movement was really big. So I kind of got first into paleo and then I got really big into keto and all of these were really great mechanisms to help me with kind of dialing in and nutrition. I was on a much better exercise routine, just a much better like mental wellness routine as well. And uh, kind of the rest, the rest is history. I weigh now, if anybody's wondering, I dropped from 265 to now I'm about 215, uh, but it's a lean, you know, about 10 to 12% body fat is where I like to maintain. So I, I try to stay more on the lean side and I just feel a lot better. And, you know, it was, for me, it was life-changing because yes, I feel better, but I was able to concentrate and really focus on the things that I was passionate about in school, which I'm sure we'll get into in the field of psychophysiology and heart rate variability. But uh, yeah, kind of one thing led to another. I got well-connected within the health and wellness scene. And as you mentioned before, uh, Ben Greenfield and I are good friends and I uh, co-host his Q&A episodes with him. So yeah, bit of a bit of a fun journey there. Yeah, that's... Uh... I guess like, you know, when you're uh, in high school and you're trying to build as much muscle, then like the dirty bulking uh, is usually like what a lot of people tend to gravitate to, especially if they are coming from like a skinny uh, frame. Uh, but yeah, I agree that you're in the long, long run, you're much better off having like a slightly less uh, body mass as well, whether that even if it is muscle and it's kind of, yeah, starts to like, you know, it makes it harder to uh, stay optimized mentally as well if you're like having just too much mass. Mm. Um, so yeah, like, um, are, are you having like right now, uh, do you have like any patients or what are you like, what's your everyday, uh, work look like nowadays? Yeah. So it's been interesting the last, for the last year or so, actually it's been right at a year. Um, I co-founded a company, um, called Hanu Health. So I'm the co-founder and chief scientific officer of that company. We're a wearable technology that continuously looks at overall uh, changes in the autonomic nervous system and stress response via HRV, heart rate, and respiration rate. Prior to that, I was doing mainly uh, work with patients. So a lot of work uh, in research and then a lot of work actually with, with clientele. And I was predominantly working with a vast array of individuals uh, utilizing kind of my niche area of psychophysiology, biofeedback, and, and other strategies and in integrative health. And I was seeing predominantly individuals who are high-level executives, CEOs of, of high-level companies, a lot of professional athletes in the MLB, PGA, NFL, um, ATP, so a lot of, lot of individuals there. And then also working as a consultant for a lot of health technology, biotech companies who are utilizing either wearable tech um, or HRV in, the, in terms of research to look at the efficacy of their products. 
And then uh, it wasn't until uh, August of last year, I was approached by another individual, a um, serial entrepreneur within kind of the Silicon Valley area who was looking to kind of devote his time into health tech. And uh, he's like, is there a wearable out there for monitoring the human stress response and continuously monitoring HRV? And at the time, there was really only one company doing it, but they weren't super focused on the consumer. Um, they were really looking more at kind of business and health and wellness, corporate wellness. And so for us, uh, we're like, we saw a valuable opportunity. So that's what I've been doing for the last year. I haven't seen any patients in an entire year, which is really weird for me. Uh, really just been devoted into creating a product, uh, which we're launching here in, in basically a few weeks, which is kind of bizarre to go from, you know, 12 months ago, not having anything till uh, 12 months. Uh, I mean, 12 months, we now have a product, which is pretty bizarre. Yeah, I would imagine it's a pretty uh, big shift for sure. Uh, yeah. But when it comes to yeah, like HRV itself, then yeah, I don't know, like a lot of, or there are like, you know, a few uh, wearables that track it, like, you know, the O-ring does it and uh, the Whoop I've heard, I haven't used the Whoop, but uh, I think that tracks the HRV as well. Uh, so yeah, but I mean, for me, like HRV is one of the most valuable, uh, like biometrics that you can track on a daily basis. Uh, like it just, you know, tells you your nervous system state and your whether you're recovered. And uh, yeah, just, you know, you can even track like whether or not you're gonna get sick or if you are sick in some sense. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think it's one of the best like track, tracking um, markers to look at on a daily basis all the time. Yeah, no, 100%. And yeah, you're right. So a lot of wearables, it's become kind of, kind of ubiquitous, um, HRV has because it's found in almost every wearable. Uh, you know, at Hane, we do it a little bit differently on how we track it and when we track it, whereas most are tracking it overnight when people are sleeping, looking at kind of the, the changes in heart rate variability across sleep architecture and then looking at a general recovery score in the morning, whereas ours is continually looking at shifts and changes in HRV. But no matter what way you're tracking it, again, I agree, this is one of the, if not the most valuable biometrics that we have in wearable tech right now, because it provides so much invaluable information and can be quite preventative as well when it comes to injury, when it comes to sickness and ailments. And then when it comes to just overall general stress that could be affecting overall performance and recovery. Mm. So what is uh, HRV in the first place? Like, can you maybe describe it a bit? Sure, absolutely. So HRV, um, and I like to always take like a 30,000 foot view and then kind of hone it in because one thing that we know about heart rate variability uh, is that HRV is extremely complex in its nature. It's not a super simple biometric. Um, it kind of is when I explain it in the 30,000 foot view, but then as we kind of dig into the nuances of HRV, it gets extremely complex and it can be very confusing. And unlike other biometrics where people feel like they can indeed kind of almost compare themselves with others, HRV is very different. And so we should certainly uh, tackle that. But at its 30,000 foot view, heart rate variability or HRV uh, is indeed the single greatest non-invasive proxy that we have for looking or at examining state shifts in the autonomic nervous system. And the reason why that is so incredibly valuable and incredibly important is because looking at the state changes or shifts in our autonomic nervous system can give us great insight into the human stress response and also give us great insight into how well or not so well we are either repairing or having deleterious impact or effects on our nervous system. So heart rate variability is indeed actually looking at the variability that occurs in between successive heartbeats. So a lot of people understand heart rate intuitively. So if I kind of use easy math and I say, 
your heart rate is at 60 beats per minute, well, then we can then deduce and say every one second within that last minute, we had our heart beat. So if that were the case and your heart did beat at a rate of one, one second, so it'd be every single second, then that would actually be a heart rate variability of zero milliseconds. There would be no variance if there was always one second in between successive heartbeats. The heart is not a metronome, so it doesn't operate that way. And the reason that it's not a metronome is because your cardiovascular system has to respond to trillions of processes at any given second, which means that it needs to adjust to the ins, outs, ebbs, flows, and ups and downs of changes in our nervous system and changes within our internal and external environment. We know that heart rate variability or that change between successive heartbeats is going to be indicative as to how well your body can adjust to stressors. And I think that, you know, Seem, you've done a really good job about this in that a lot of times we demonize kind of this concept of stress and we think of it as this inherently bad thing. And I tell people, no, no, actually stress is inherently good. Stress is nothing but a warning sign. It is something that allows us to know that the thing that we are encountering is either something that we can choose, and this is kind of comes to mindset and perception, choose to allow to help us to build. And we can either fight or flee from that thing because it may be deleterious, it may be bad for us, but we could also use it. So when we think about heart rate variability, we're thinking about how well does the body adjust? How well does the body adapt to all of these stressors that we occur on a second by second by second basis? So the good, a, a way of thinking about heart rate variability is that as we encounter a stress, if the body adapts well, then we know that heart rate variability is typically not suppressed significantly, or if it is, it rebounds really quickly. Whereas if we experience a stressor that really rattles us, that could be psychological stress, that could be somebody cutting us off in traffic, it could be so work, a coworker yelling at us, is that heart rate variability will respond accordingly because it's your nervous system responding accordingly. And I think that's the one takeaway that I like to give people is that in it, heart rate variability in and of itself is just a number. We have to remember what it represents and it represents adaptability to stress. It represents our nervous system's adaptability to stress. So again, that's the 30,000 foot view. If we think about what HRV, it's a proxy for shift changes in our autonomic nervous system. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's an excellent uh, overview that you gave. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, people intuitively know what's the heart rate, um, beat to beat, beat, beat uh, but yeah, like the heart rate variability is some of the new concepts for many, many people. And even then, like they necessarily, you know, don't realize that actually you need or you want to have like this high variability in the heartbeats, which is which is the healthy uh, sign of a healthy nervous system. Whereas like this monotonous beating, like that 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 is like you know that the body is stressed out and uh, the HIV is low in that sense. Whereas you have like that kind of this high variability is the where your body is relaxed. I think that's maybe like a new concept for a lot of people to um, realize that yeah, like you know, actually this irregular heartbeat almost not in a, like a literal sense but a bit of like variety in it is uh, somewhat the yes. absolutely so one of the biggest contributor uh, to heart rate variability is a physiological process called respiratory sinus arrhythmia rsa and immediately people hear that word arrhythmia and they think uh-oh not a good thing because a lot of people are thinking something like atrial fibrillation or afib whereas this type of arrhythmia happens with everybody and arrhythmia just means irregular it doesn't it means that it's not a metronome 
So that's actually a good thing. So when we think about what respiratory sinus arrhythmia is, and it's really good to understand this because it is the number one contributor to heart rate variability, is respiratory sinus arrhythmia is the natural change or rhythm change of heart rate across the respiratory cycle. So as we inhale, heart rate is going to naturally increase. And that's because number one, we have increased oxygenation. And so now we need our cells to be delivered oxygen, our muscles to be delivered oxygen really quickly because it's present. So heart rate speeds up. Um, actually too, when we inflate our lungs, we compress the heart. So the heart actually changes shape and becomes smaller, which allows for less expansion. So it also beats faster. And then on the exhale, we know that heart rate significantly slows down and it significantly slows down through the firing of our vagus nerve, our, 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 our tenth cranial nerve. And the reason that this happens is because it's modulated by a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine or acetylcholine. And so we see heart rate come down. Now that change, that increase in heart rate and that decrease of heart rate across the respiration cycle is gonna naturally increase heart rate variability because of an increase and then a decrease. As we elongate breathing, which is why reason why breath work or heart rate variability biofeedback is so incredibly important, especially as we extend the exhalation, we increase that variance in between successive heartbeats, which increases heart rate variability. So the number one go-to strategy if people wanna increase heart rate variability is breathing. It's paced breathing or changing the mechanics and cadence of breathing. But yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon because people think like, oh no, I want my heart rate to be steady. And it sounds like, or it feels intuitively like you would want that to happen. But indeed, what you actually want to have happen is for there to be tons of variability that's not associated with like a heart defect or something, a heart complication, because there are certain heart rate arrhythmias like AFib that can cause insane heart rate variability. So someone with AFib could have a heart rate variability of four or 500 milliseconds, which would be insanely high, but that's because we have a crazy irregularity of heartbeat that is a true, like deleterious form of arrhythmia. Mm, yeah. Um, so if you have like, you know, super high HRV, then that can also be like some more like heart, heart problems uh, in some, some sense, if you have like super crazy high HRV. It could be, it could be. So like, if you're someone who experiences like a lot of what we call ectopic beats. It's like the feeling of your heart skipping or your heart racing or just kind of a change shift in the in, in the type of pacing of your heart. And it's always good to go get it checked up on. I mean, you know, even things like Apple Watch or other wearables now have the ability for you to run like a quick ECG that looks for like the complications of arrhythmia. It's always good to get it checked out. Most people don't have that. Um, like an irregular heartbeat that is deleterious. Most people do have ectopic beats. So like a skipped heartbeat every once in a while, or that feeling of a raced heartbeat. Th that's, those are typically benign. If you feel like you're having them pretty often, I always tell people come off caffeine, make sure that you're getting good quality sleep, do a lot of these lifestyle changes. And if they persist, then you may want to get like a 24 hour Holter monitor that looks for arrhythmias. Uh, but for the most part, uh, most people don't have them. And if they do have them, like it's just kind of every once in a while. Mm. And what if you have this monotonous heartbeat, like your HRV is low, what like health complications could like that be? Yeah, so it can run the gamut here. Um, so I'll, I'll name a few of the common ones. 
when most people get into a pretty stressful situation, um, so we'll talk about it either being physiological stressful or psychologically stressful, the body responds the same exact way from a physiological perspective, whether it's a physiological stressor like exercise um, or sauna or you know cold therapy, or if it's psychological stress, we see heart rate variability and heart rate do very similar things and look almost the same. If you were just looking at an ECG or just at a heart rate, a monitor or like using Hanu, if you threw both of them in front of me, like I may not be able to tell the difference unless somebody's doing like high intensity work, then I'm like, okay, your heart rate's at the 165, 170. Like if stress, like psychological stress is getting your heart rate up to 165, 170, we got some problems here. Uh, but what we typically will see is that suppression of heart rate variability where the heart becomes like a metronome. And the reason the heart becomes like a metronome is because number one, we're utilizing or mobilizing a ton of our energy and the heart understands that. And so there are mechanisms of the cardiovascular system to conserve energy if it knows that other areas of the body need more energy. The lungs need energy. The heart obviously needs energy. The brain needs energy. When we're stressed, the heart will begin to pace itself. And the reason, again, it's pacing itself is because there's mass chaos everywhere else. Let's create some form of homeostasis. But that, again, is a great warning sign for us if we're monitoring it because we see HRV significantly suppressed and we say, okay, that's a warning sign that there is some form of stressor on this individual, whether or not it's physiological stress or psychological stress, the nervous system right now is being taxed. And that is what HRV is so incredibly valuable for is showing us when HRV, or sorry, when our autonomic nervous system is becoming incredibly taxed. So one thing we know is that people who have really poor cardiometabolic health, so whether it's metabolic health or cardiovascular health, but for most people, it's a combination of the two, whether it's difficulty with blood glucose management, difficulty with cardiovascular disease or some form of uh, blood pressure problem or whatever it may be cardiovascularly related. We know that these individuals typically have pretty suppressed HRV. Uh, and the reason is because their metabolic systems and their cardiovascular systems are so incredibly taxed that HRV will be significantly suppressed. So here in the US, like this is one of the most common problems that we see people with diabetes, cardiovascular disease. We know from plenty of research that these individuals have an extremely taxed nervous system and HRV is typically suppressed. People who are dealing with significant mental health problems related to anxiety, depression, PTSD, these individuals have an overtaxed nervous system, which then leads to a reduction in HRV. And we see a lot of the times it's kind of like a big one-two punch. So we know there is a general rule of thumb that we want to have a really nice, quote-unquote, balanced HRV, which really means that we are staying within our normalized baseline range and we're not experiencing that suppressed or taxation on heart rate variability or autonomic nervous system. We also want heart rate to do the same thing. A really highly variable heart rate outside of exercise is not a good thing. We like to have a level of stabilization within our own baseline range. We know that individuals who are experiencing significant physiological ailments or significant psychological ailments have kind of this crazy variance and they go in and out of their zones all the time because their nervous system is so incredibly sensitive to internal or external stressors and it responds very viscerally. So the whole idea would then to be able to train good synchrony and consistency with HRV and with heart rate, not saying let's dip heart rate as low as we can, get HRV as high as we can, 
but really to focus on overall stabilization. So those are the things to really watch out for. Again, this is probably more common than it is not common with people who are in poor cardiometabolic health or people who have significant concerns related to anxiety or depression or you know, trauma, PTSD. All of these are going to be uh, there are going to be indicators from your nervous system, or at least warning signs from your nervous system that it is taxed because of, uh, uh, you know, these, these areas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the HIV is also associated with, um, mortality or that, you know, higher HIV is better, uh, lower, lower risk of mortality overall. Um, but do you know, like, is there like, what's the range of that? Like how high do you need to have your HIV? to be considered like healthy or, and what's, what's the HIV when you're considered to be, you know, something is wrong. Do you have any number? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because when they've done studies looking at heart rate variability and what are the characteristics um, that are associated or kind of like the mediating variables between heart rate variability and autonomic nervous system functioning and longevity, <clears throat> is there kind of a pathway in between? And there are two things that they find is that individuals who have a higher HRV and higher is very relative because there is nothing <clears throat> within the HRV domain that says you should have you know, above 50 milliseconds or above 100 milliseconds. There's no range for that. So it's very different in terms of biometrics and ranges. So that's one thing to keep in note. But the one thing that we do know is that as people increase heart rate variability relative to their baseline, they typically will experience two different things. One is better self-control of their autonomic nervous system. So the ability to regulate or modulate or engage in autonomic control in a much more efficient manner. And that is the key thing. And the thing that we focus most on HANU is training better autonomic control so that when you experience kind of these stressors, especially if they are causing you detriment, that you can then immediately utilize or exercise control over your autonomic nervous system through breathing, through HRV biofeedback, through different regulation techniques. That is actually mostly associated with longevity, your ability to control your nervous system at will. The second thing is, is that as people increase heart rate variability, especially through different mechanisms, like let's say biofeedback or other training techniques through increasing cardiorespiratory fitness, is that they increase emotional regulation. And that is one of the biggest triggers for health and longevity and wellness, is that if people can better train regulation of their emotions, we know that they have better health and longevity outcomes. So those two key components, better self-regulation of their nervous system and better emotional control lead to better health outcomes. And the one point that I'll make on emotional regulation is that a lot of it is tied with anger and hostility so that we know that people who kind of allow themselves to be immersed in anger and in hostility, they increase overall cardiac output, which increases heart rate, it decreases heart rate variability, increases dysregulation of the HPA axis or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And this causes a cascade of different physiological phenomenon that leads to increased inflammation, both of the heart and other areas of the body, and is extremely detrimental or deleterious to the body. So those are the two key components. And I like coming back to those because a lot of people seem will place so much emphasis on HRV. I got to get that number up. I got to get that number up. 
And I think that that's a poor focus. Right. I think if you focus on the health and longevity outcomes of increasing self-control and increasing emotional regulation, we see that naturally heart rate variability will increase. So I like to say, focus on those two key components, which is again, what we focus on with Hanu and focus less on the number because a lot of people get frustrated when they focus on the number. And then again, frustration is poor emotional regulation at times. They focus on the number and they don't get the results immediately like they would want to. Whereas I'm like, if you focus on better control of your autonomic nervous system, if you focus on better emotional regulation, we see from research and science that heart rate variability can be increased significantly. Mm. <laughs> That's a really good point. And, uh, and I love that you brought it up. And I agree completely with you. Like, you know, people are just very like, I don't know, maybe it's in our brains, this uh, imprint that we want to see like actual numbers and see things improve on paper, etc. But yeah, like, like you said, the more important thing is that, you know, how you, uh, let's say, uh, show yourself, how you show up in the world is much more important, how you actually react to these uh, events and how you react emotionally to different situations. That's more important at the end of the day. And uh, yeah, like the heart rate variability is more of like a, yeah, like a reflection and an association uh, in that sense, uh, that can also be, you know, useful to train, of course, you know, you see if the numbers are going up, then it's good. But yeah, like the main focus should be uh, still on how you actually perform and show up in the in the real world, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one thing too to keep in mind is that <clears throat> heart rate variability changes significantly uh, moment by moment. So like right now, I'm looking over at my Hanu. And like when you and I started talking, my heart rate variability was around 60 milliseconds. As I got talking, I get energized. Um, it goes down to like right now, it's like 37. So by the time I stop talking and I get back in, but I'm not stressed right now. I'm excited. And maybe a little bit I'm stressed because I'm excited. So the nervous system is getting excited. And so we see these fluctuations. So more than importantly is looking at trends over time. And when we think about HRV, like that's the biggest component is looking at trends. You know, a one day score without any context is basically meaningless. But if we start to see kind of this downward trend over the course of two, three, four days, well, now we know we're not, our nervous system is being taxed and it's not recovering very well. Like we just continue to see a downward trend and the opposite goes as well. If we're seeing this upward trend, then this is really good. It looks like there's a reparation of our nervous system. Like we're doing something that's really helping to build fortitude within our stress response. So I think that people have to remember that heart rate variability outside of context is basically useless. You have to have context and you have to look at shifts and trends over time. And then you need to know like what is normal for you because it, you know you might kind of put on your aura ring one day like for, especially when people once get it and they see oh okay like my aura ring uh, rating was uh, my milliseconds was 50 and the next day they see it and they're like okay it was 75 and then the next day they say oh it's back to 50 and they're trying to make you know heads or tails of their data well now it's all about again finding over time and when we say how long does it take moment to know kind of your, your trend and baseline. Well, if you're only capturing overnight or once per day, let's say in the morning, which are very reasonable ways of capturing HRV data, uh, then we really need kind of a good week, two weeks, three weeks. Um, you would even have some people who would argue that three months would suffice. And I would say that, yes, the more and more data you get, the better and better we know. Like that just makes intuitive sense, right? If we collect tons of data and we have a massive amount of data to look at, we're going to have a better understanding 
of shifts or changes or dynamics in your nervous system better than if we had you know, a day or two. Um, so it just takes a little bit of time and having a good framework. The one thing, unfortunately, that a lot of wearables don't do, that they don't give you a good framework. They just kind of give you a number and that's it. And you kind of have to make your own, own interpretations and not to kind of continue to plug Hanu, but we wanted to solve that problem because we saw it as a problem. We wanted people to be able to contextualize changes in heart rate variability and be able to log and understand what changes are affected because of you know, said context or said event or circumstance. Um, so a lot of it is knowing your data and knowing it within the context of you know, what your experience is and your circumstance. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, people tend to compare their HRV to others as well. So like, you know, when I've uh, like shared my ORing um, scores on, uh, on Instagram, then uh, people like comment, oh, how did you get like 100 or something? I always get like 15 all the time or 20 at max. So I think, you know, what matters more is yeah, like the trends of, you know, how do you fluctuate between your baseline and everyone has a different baseline before because of different reasons and uh, I'm, well i think at the oring also like probably measures it like differently uh, so it's easy mm -hmm. in that sense the inaccurate uh, of having like an objective hrv like everyone has their own subjective hrv uh, and you should yeah pay attention to that like how does it fluctuate are you stressed out now and uh, did you sleep good and those things and how those activities affect uh, your baseline hrv that's kind of the more important thing uh, so uh, what are like maybe like some good strategies to train that HRV or uh, increase it? Like what's the strategy for that? Yeah, yeah. So you make, you make a really good point in terms of <clears throat> when we think about comparison, it's always self-comparison. Um, so this is, a, this is a, and there's reasons behind that. I want to explain that too, just in case people are like, well, why are there differences? There, but there are differences. <clears throat> I tell people, and I like to use this kind of story, I tell people that it's not as important as where your baseline is. It's more important of how much control you have over that number at any given moment in time. So how much can you modulate it? And here's this example that I give. And then we'll talk about strategies. And I'll tell, talk to you about how I work with this individual. I had an Olympic athlete that I was working with a few years ago. And he had a pretty relatively high HRV. If people would see it, they would say, oh yeah, that's really high. It was like 150 milliseconds um, every single day. Uh, and this individual was training all the time, I mean, Olympic athlete. So, I mean, his life was devoted and, and just surrounded by training, training, training. The one thing that we found with this individual is that when we put him on a task and we said, okay, I want you to uh, utilize some biofeedback to raise your HRV at any given moment. So change your breathing pattern and let's see what, ha what happens to HRV. <clears throat> he could take it from like 150 up to like 155. Um, so not super high, five milliseconds of an increase. Whereas I had another clientele um, who she was very concerned about her HRV and had a you know 20 millisecond HRV on her aura ring. It was like, I need help with this. I have a quote unquote bad HRV. And I said, well, are you feeling stressed? Are you feeling taxed? Like, no, I'm doing all these great things for my health and well-being. And I said, all right, I want you to modulate your HRV. And she took her HRV from 20 when she was sitting with me all the way up to 65 in a matter of like one minute. Wow. So whose HRV would I rather have? Or I should say, whose nervous system would I rather have? 
the girl with 20. And the reason being is because she had full control over her nervous system. My Olympic athlete, the reason why he had so much trouble raising HRV is because his nervous system was taxed. I mean, he was overreaching. He was overtraining. He had a naturally high HRV because number one, he had extremely high cardiorespiratory fitness, and which is a huge contributor and probably the number one contributor. But number two, he also uh, was an individual uh, who just had really good genetics. And that's one thing to keep in mind is that there are plenty of HRV studies or nervous system studies that have found that HRV has a very high genetic component. There's also contributors related to sex or gender. Um, there's also contributors related to height, um, to uh, ethnicity. We know that there's connections there. So actually, I always joke that I'm a six foot five white male. And so I actually have the uh, a propensity for having some of the highest HRV scores out there. But really, I'm not as concerned with where people's baseline HRVs are, as I am concerned with how well can you modulate HRV. So that's kind of the test we do with a lot of individuals, is we say, okay, if you want to know, because you can indeed have a quote unquote bad HRV, but bad is relative. So let's say, yes, your, your normal baseline range is at 20 milliseconds. And let's say you wake up one morning and it's seven milliseconds. Well, we know that your nervous system has been pretty taxed that day. I mean, we see, you know, well over a 50% decrease in overall HRV. Something has taxed your nervous system, whether it's sickness, it's overtraining, it's an immense amount of psychological stress. It's, it could be a combination of all of these. We know that. So it's good to kind of know that there is a bad, but bad's relative. Like you can't look at, you know, your Instagram post or mine and say, oh, let me now compare my numbers. You know, mine must be bad. Like, no, there's, there's so many other different components. But if we want to really work on increasing overall HRV, the focus is, should or should be on how can we increase overall nervous system resiliency? So that's the adaptability or fortitude of our nervous system to adjust or adapt to stress. And so the one thing that I say is that the number one thing that we see in research to increase a baseline HRV is to increase overall cardiorespiratory fitness. And so if people are wondering, I know you've produced a lot of content out there. There's a lot of great content just in general on increasing cardiorespiratory fitness. When we're, if we think about it in terms of biometrics, we're really talking about how can we increase overall VO2 max. Um, so that can be through a combination of many different things, zone two training, you know, hit or zone five training, you know, utilizing resistance or strength-based training. There's a lot of different mechanisms that we can use to increase VO2 max. So I won't kind of go too much into detail, but that's number one. Number two, the one thing that's attainable by everybody is utilizing something that everybody has access to at any given moment, which is breathing. So as I mentioned just a little bit ago, the number one contributor to heart rate variability at a acute or transient phase would be breathing, which would be changing the biomechanics and changing the biocadence or the pacing of breathing. And I would even say the biochemistry of breathing. This is a very simple thing that people can do at any given moment. The reason why this is so incredibly important is because we know that when we change the physiology of breathing, when we change the way that we breathe, mechanics, and the cadence of breathing, then we actually send signals via our vagus nerve. So we know that the, it's about 90% afferent, these signals, which means from the body to the brain. So we can change the brain, how the brain is functioning and perceiving through changing our direct physiology. So if we do this, 
Uh, what we know is that most people will see an instantaneous increase in heart rate variability. And that's one of the great things about doing biofeedback is that a lot of people will engage in, let's say, breathwork practices. And a lot of people will say subjectively, yeah, I feel better. And physiologically, a lot of things are occurring for the better for their body. But they'll say, you know, subjectively, I feel good. Like, I, I feel like it's less stressful. But I think the kicker here and the thing that can help to condition a more robust response is when you see your biometric data change. When you look and say, okay, it's not just subjective, but man, look at heart rate variability. It increased by 50% or 100% in a matter of one to two minutes just through changing our breathing patterns. For a lot of people from a neurological perspective, this is going to better help to condition behavior because it becomes both subjective, I feel better, and objective, I can see how my physiology inherently changes that gets people coming back for more. It's one of the main reasons that I think a lot of like breathwork practices, a lot of mindfulness or meditation practices, a lot of people abandon them because they engage in it initially and it feels really good and it's very effective. We know from research that meditation, breath work, these are enormously effective strategies that people can utilize. But a lot of times if people don't see kind of the data because we're, we're in the age of the self-quantified, you know, the, yeah, of being self-quantified, like people just want to see data change. If they don't see it, then a lot of times, like it doesn't become conditioned. Like people aren't like, oh, I want to come back for more and more. I think it's the reason why like news headsets for people are so incredibly valuable um, or can be because people are like, oh, well, I see my brain waves changing in real time. Whereas you can see your nervous system change in real time if you do something like HRV biofeedback. So that's kind of one of my number one go-to strategies. Other strategies include things like meditation, things like non-sleep deep rest or no yoga nidra or other types of guided practices. These can be incredibly helpful. The one thing, a key component here is that we're trying to uh, engage our parasympathetic nervous system so that we can downregulate our sympathetic nervous system to put ourselves in a state of relaxation, especially if we see that our nervous system is going into overdrive. So anything that we can do to downregulate the nervous system when we need to, because we shouldn't always be downregulating the nervous system. I think a lot of people get confused and think, oh, well, my heart rate variability should always be high. You know, there are times actually where you want your sympathetic nervous system to be kicked into high gear and you don't have a need for your parasympathetic nervous system. Like when you exercise, like you shouldn't be trying to actively engage during a working set your parasympathetic nervous system, maybe in between sets, because when you're not working, you're recovering, that can be a great technique to engage in breath work. However, during a set, um, good luck. Like it's just not what you should be doing. Um, it's not going to be very, very effective, or it's not going to be, you're not going to have a huge ROI on that. So I tell people that really, like if you're looking to recover, that's when we want to engage the parasympathetic nervous system and to engage in, in good biofeedback. Uh, the last thing that I'll say as a good contributor um, uh, is, is, uh, well, I would say that good nutrition is absolutely one. Make sure that you're staying hydrated, uh, make sure that you have a high level of electrolytes in the body and that you're not depleted and that your body's not working overtime because of a depletion in electrolytes. And then just overall low inflammation. Um, cause we know that stress, especially psych, well, I mean, physiological and psychological stress causes a mass taxation, not just on your nervous system, but can be extremely inflammatory, as you know, and as many of your listeners are going to know. So maintaining a 
really good um, low inflammatory type of uh, nutritional status is great as well. And the one key component, which might even be number one, but I'm mentioning it kind of on the back end here, is really good quality restorative sleep. I mean, I cannot um, uh, overemphasize the importance of good quality sleep. People will see it. It's really great. And one of the great things that Aura has done is that you can see when you have a really crappy night of sleep and let's say sleep efficiency is not very good. You're waking up all night is that you'll see your heart rate is going to stay elevated and your HRV is going to stay suppressed. Uh, it's very much coincide. And that, and one thing that you'll see too, if you're wearing, let's say like Hanu, a continuous daytime monitor of HRV, You'll see that if you have a poor night's worth of sleep and you're not fully recovered, you'll see that represented in that day's uh, HRV score. Doesn't mean that you're screwed and you can't like have a really good successful day, but you'll see that how the nervous system is taxed when you have a poor night's sleep. So optimizing sleep is, is another one. Mm. Yeah, that's a really awesome uh, list that you agree. I, I agree that all those are very like one of the most effective yeah, ways to have a more robust nervous system and to increase the hrv yeah sleep and um, breath work and exercise obviously those are the you know pillar stones to overall health and uh, wellness as well uh maybe like a few additional things that i've i don't know if you've seen those uh but i i've seen like you know that fasting can increase that hrv or like during the fasting it kind of decreases it because of physiological stress uh but after mm -hmm. afterwards you become more resilient against stress by doing that and the same with exercise. When you, when you exercise, you become more resilient uh, to everyday stress as well. That's what the studies uh, suggest. Uh, yeah, like any kind of you know this positive hormetic stressors, like cold and sauna, probably also has uh, the same uh, effect. Absolutely. There's so many great, you'll love this. There, there's so many great research looking at uh, heat exposure and cold exposure and heart rate variability um, and how that stress can build immense resilience through, through the process of hormesis. Uh, and we see resilience in the nervous system as representative by HRV. So one great thing that people can test out, um, and this has been shown over and over again in the literature, I'll use heat as a first example and then cold, is that engaging in a 20-minute sauna practice, um, generally around um, kind of the, the range of anywhere from about 185 to 195 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 minutes will cause, as we know, that extreme, uh, I won't say extreme, but it'll cause a significant increase in heart rate, a significant decrease in heart rate variability, but then about 30 minutes post utilizing uh, heat exposure like a sauna, we'll see a significant increase in heart rate variability above your prior baseline that you had before going into sauna. The same things happens with cold therapy. The one thing I see with cold plunge, which is quite interesting to me, is that uh, for me, especially, and it depends too on how someone does cold therapy. So like if you engage a little bit of uh, your mammalian dive reflex by dipping your face in water and allowing your face to submerge for a second, you'll see a ginormous uh, decrease in heart rate and you'll see a huge spike in heart rate variability. Um, if you stay in for a period of time, heart rate will go up. You'll see kind of that stress response kick in, but I always do a little bit of a, uh, of a face dunk for that, for that experience. But then afterwards, again, generally 25, 30 minutes or so, you'll see this nice spike in HRV. And what we see over time is that the more that you do it, and not more saying that more is better, you should be doing it every day, but consistency of your practice, however many times that is per week, is that you'll see that baseline range start to go up. Because again, we're using and we're becoming kind of as, as you mentioned before, like stronger by stress, because we're introducing these stressors to the nervous system. 
um, so that it can, again, rebuild back in a stronger fashion. And so it's a, it's a great thing. To your point, too, Sim, in regards to fasting, um, fasting is a really interesting one because initially we've seen studies that about after 24 hours of a, of a fast, we actually see a nice little bump in HRV. But then as you go and you extend your fast to like 48 or 72 hours, because of the stress that it has on the body, you'll typically see a suppression or a depression in HRV. Is that a bad thing? No, it's uh, it, not necessarily, I should say. I guess all things could be a, a yes or a no, but not necessarily. And the reason being is because obviously an extended fast out that long um, is a bit of a stressor on the body. However, after people break that fast, they typically will see a rise in HRV and they see that that baseline range starts to bump up a little bit. So again, I think that everything within its own context and knowing again, that just because you see a dip in HRV, all that's telling you is that something is taxing the nervous system. Now you have the opportunity to say, is that taxation something that is deleterious to me? Or is that something that's actually going to help me? So this is again, more of a perception and a mindset thing. But we, we have to remember too, that exposure to stress can be quite good for us or is quite good for us on a transient basis. But if we see a suppression in stress because of work-related stress and we're burning the midnight oil and staying up and we are just like overall like taxed, well, that's deleterious stress. That's stress that's working against us, which is going to look physiologically pretty similar to quote unquote eustress or good stress. Uh, but it's up to us to be able to be self-aware, catch it, and then do something different about it to help better regulate the nervous system. Mm, yeah, and I would imagine that, you know, any of those good things that raise HRV in the, the moderate amounts uh, would also like decrease it if they're in excess. So if you are overtraining and, uh, you know, not recovering adequately, then yeah, it's going to eventually drop the HRV as well. So everything kind of in moderation and everything uh, together with uh, adequate recovery. 100%, absolutely. Mm. I think I've also seen that uh, like, uh, gargling water so like in the in the back of the throat also does that because that stimulates the vagus nerve which helps to uh, basically like promote parasympathetic activity and like humming yes. music uh, probably like you know physical touch of uh, you know hugging or whatever those things also uh, have those effects absolutely yeah these are all great i mean i love i love them so gargling water humming um, is a, a mechanism for stimulating the vagus nerve. It's actually also a mechanism for increasing overall CO2 tolerance because when we're gargling or when we're humming, um, we're essentially holding our breath or we're actually releasing our breath very, very slowly. So it's almost like a way of doing um, CO2 tolerance work kind of similar to breath holds without having to fully do it. And we know that as we increase our overall tolerance to CO2, this is great for overall physiological performance, but it's also great for psychological well-being. Uh, that's just a really cool phenomenon and a lot of work of, of my, one of my partners, uh, Patrick McCune, Oxygen Advantage, who co-hosts the Hanu Health Podcast with me. Um, he is phenomenal about bringing forth kind of this need and the mechanisms uh, regarding increasing uh, overall CO2 tolerance and how that can improve vagal activity and increase overall um, um, HRV. The one that you mentioned too that I really love um, that I think is probably the most undermined and underrated is physical touch and relationships and just love. Um, it's one that I think for a lot of us who are in the health and wellness space, like it can initially sound maybe even a little woo-woo-ish or a little bit soft. And I think it's far from it. It's actually an incredibly potent strategy 
for increasing overall uh, uh, nervous system resilience. So I think about this in relation to kind of my, my spouse and to my, uh, both of my boys and my kids. Like these are things that I've seen kind of in wearing a continuous monitor that if we're just sitting on the couch, let's say watching a show or reading a book together, is like there is so much just activity for my parasympathetic nervous system and release of oxytocin and also kind of that combination of release of, of, dopamine, of dopamine and acetylcholine, the, all these love chemicals that occur that can actually increase fortitude and resilience in the nervous system. And this comes back to, in my opinion, kind of that component that's related to HRV and longevity, which is the, the emotional regulation piece. When we're regulating our emotions kind of in that, in that sense, I think we really see this bump in nervous system fortitude that's quite helpful for us. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's very underrated in that sense. And uh, I would imagine that, yeah, like, you know, it's funny, like which one would be uh, kind of a chicken and egg <laughs> situation. So like, you know, would you be able to like have better um, social interactions, uh, especially when you're like, you know, semi-stressful sometimes with children, et cetera, then if you exercise, you know, you would have better emotional capability to do that um, because of higher HRV. Uh, and on the other hand, like, you know, if you have those more beneficial relationships and uh, you get those love chemicals from that, then uh, yeah, you're mm -hmm. just kind of, yeah, goes back into that circle of having higher HRE, et cetera. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. obviously probably you would need to just exercise even as a parent <laughs> if you want to. Right. Oh yeah. Have exactly. better, uh, like interactions uh, with uh, children, especially if they're like, you know, young children. Yeah, I, no, I, I think so. No, I absolutely think so. I mean, the, the more and more we can build, you know, when I think about parenting, a really interesting one, the more and more we can build in whatever way resiliency and fortitude in our nervous system, the better we're going to relate to other people because we're going to find that things stress us out less. Uh, we think, and, then, and when they do stress us, we find that we're able to recover a lot faster and we're able to control our response. We're able to regulate our response a lot faster. So I think that those are extremely valuable components as a parent, but also just, I mean, as a friend, as a coworker, as, you know, a, you know, a sibling, as a child of someone who has parents, like it's, just, it's it, it relates to all of those areas. Mm, yeah, that's true. Uh, one little side question, or, you know, you've, sometimes you hear that maybe this, this idea that uh, the faster your heart beats, the like, the faster you die so do you have like a certain amount of heartbeats per life um, like is there any truth to that or uh, yeah like how do you manage that yeah it, 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 there is truth in it uh, our heart is a muscle uh, and our muscle gives out at a certain point in time uh, we can do things to help build better resilience um, so that we can essentially uh, it, it doesn't mean that we wake up well, so it's, it's an interesting one because we get kind of philosophical here, but you know, we are, I guess, born with a finite number of times that our heart is going to beat. Um, but it's not necessarily set in stone because we can change uh, things over time. So for me, it is indeed true. We have research that has indicated that a lower resting heart rate, lower variability of heart rate is an extremely, extremely valuable biometric component to overall health, wellness, and longevity. And we know that if we can better control our response, especially on everyday situations, because as you know, there are certainly reasons and purposes for getting our heart rate up really high. But 
it has to be under certain circumstances and conditions. In general, what we find is that under conditions where people are consciously getting their heart rate up via mechanisms like exercise, is that it's typically not associated with immense amounts of also competing psychological stressor. However, when we're sitting at our desk at work and we see our heart rate increase, maybe it's at 70 and goes to 80, 90, or 100, this is purely kind of the influence of psychological stress that's causing this physiological phenomenon. And so what I tell people is that that is a much more destructive mechanism uh, than you consciously increasing heart rate, heart rate through volition of exercise. So if we had a good general rule of thumb, is that under most circumstances and conditions, the more and more we create autonomic control and better emotional regulation, we're gonna be able to control our heart rate. So I love this story um, of, of, that they tell of how astronauts, um, specifically, I can't remember if it was Neil Armstrong, it was one of the astronauts who trained himself from an autonomic perspective um, to control his heart rate under every single condition that it basically like never went up other than exercise over 100. So this dude was in space. He was out like floating around in space and his heart rate basically never went over 100. Like if you think about that, that's immense control over your nervous system. Like, I can only imagine, like I would look like I was in like the high levels of zone five if I was probably floating out in space. So to have that level of autonomic control is immensely valuable for emotional regulation, but overall health, wellness, and longevity. So I think there's absolutely a point to regulating heart rate and heart rate variability throughout the day and looking at almost kind of like in, in terms of like blood glucose, how we want to be able to remain sta uh, stable and have stability with not a lot of crazy fluctuations in variability. Heart rate and heart rate variability is a really, it's really important for us to do the same exact thing. And it's funny, like with Hanu, um, that's kind of how it looks. It looks very similar to like if you're wearing a CGM where it's like, this is kind of where we want you to be and where you need to stay. And this is associated with better emotional regulation, self-control and longevity. Does it track the heart rate as well? The regular heart rate. Yeah, it's looking, at heart, it's looking at three components, heart rate variability, heart rate, and respiration rate. So it's looking continuously at how fast you're breathing as well. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, like, I think, yeah, many people tend to think that they need like some very fancy, I don't know, trackers or uh, measurements, <laughs> but uh, sometimes the most basic stuff or the most fundamental things like, yeah, your heart rate and HRV uh, would be uh, enough. With heart rate, yeah, like you could like, you know, measure your heart rate, intuitively almost even or you just measure with your finger or something uh, but the hrv that that is much harder <laughs> you need actually the complex other it's very complicated yeah. yes so that's where the tracking is very like uh, important um yeah like maybe just talk a little bit more about the hano app so like how does it work where can people get it and find it yeah yeah absolutely man so Hanu, um it might be good to share a little bit of like a background so uh, you know one of the things that Hanu is that we saw uh, and again, this is maybe a bastardization of health and wellness, but we kind of saw there being really four primary pillars of health in the wearable space. So when we think about nutrition and metabolic health, we kind of think about CGMs. Um, so those are kind of like the wearable that we see that's really good on that end. When we think about fitness and fitness tracking. There's plenty of wearables out there, right? There's Whoop. I mean, even Aura's gotten into that space. Fitbit, Apple Watch, <clears throat> Garmin, you name it. Sunto, those are all there. Uh, then we think about 
uh, sleep as another primary pillar. Aura is kind of a good front runner in sleep staging, plenty of other. Whoop does sleep staging, a lot of them do that. And then the fourth pillar is stress and, re and stress resiliency. And the one thing that we thought is like, okay, people kind of dabble in that, right? So we've got some, you know, we've got Whoop and Aura and other who are giving you an, uh, an overall like HRV score and the recovery score, and that's great, but nobody's kind of continuously monitoring changes or shifts in the autonomic nervous system and looking at stress and the, the good impact of stress and the bad impact of stress. So Hanu, we said, okay, let's answer that. Let's say, let's find uh, and make a wearable that really answers kind of that, that, that problem, which is massive for people. So what we decided on was to build a complete platform that was really intended to do two things. Number one, be a continuous self-monitor of your stress response and then teach you better self-regulation. So the way it works is that we utilize um, a consumer grade wearable ECG. So it's a Polar H10. If anybody's used um, kind of like a traditional chest strap, it's something that you can wear all day. We don't recommend people sleep with it. I mean, just kind of wear it throughout your working day when you really want to you know, be in your best leveled headed, um, have better cognitive performance, you'll wear it throughout the day. Um, and it's continuously monitoring changes in HRV, heart rate and respiration rate. Um, in the app, the way it works is that we have a stress resiliency score, which is basically an aggregate or composite of all of those three things. And we look at it in comparison to your baseline. And again, the more and more you wear it, the better we know that framework for your baseline. When we see that you are dipping low in HRV, your heart rate's getting increased and you're not moving, you're not like actively engaging in walking or some type of exercise, then we'll actually push a notification to you. And on your phone, it will say like, something's going on, like what's going on here? And we're not labeling it as good or bad. We just see a change. We see a state change in your nervous system. At that point in time, you're able to label it. So you can categorize it and say, oh, you know, I was just doing work emails and that's why my HRV dropped. I was holding my breath, a huge problem actually, which is funny. It's called email apnea. People unconsciously hold their breath when they're writing emails and their HRV will tank. And I, I noticed this on me. A lot of people have noticed it. It's a really interesting thing. And I'll just label it. And then I can subjectively rate it too, all the way from, you know, it's neutral, wasn't really impacting me, all the way to like, oh no, that was like really relaxed during that time, all the way down to where like, oh no, I was experiencing extreme stress at that time. And we call that a life event. And over time, you're able to track it. You can say, okay, what was affecting me most, you know, last week or the last month or yesterday? Um, and that's kind of how it's done. Then what we always offer you up at the end of logging a life event is we say, okay, well, we see that there's some taxation on your nervous system. Do you want to train right now? Like, do you want to do some biofeedback? And you can do any type of training. You can do, uh, you know, a customized breathing. You can do box breathing. You can do resonance breathing, which is kind of our framework of breathing. It's really uh, finding that rate that most amplifies or optimizes HRV. We actually have the resonant frequency assessment built into our application where you can find what is the optimal rate of breathing that increases the amplitude of heart rate variability and respiratory sinus arrhythmia, or those heart rate fluctuations. So we have that built into the app. Um, the other thing that we have that we really love, especially for like the, you know, the so-called biohacker or the health optimizer, is we have the ability for you to kind of like use our application to test things. So you can test cold, sa uh, cold therapy, you can test it in the sauna, you can test it during workouts. You can actually use kind of like consumer-based, uh, uh, you know, biohacking tech to see how it affects you. Like if you want to say, okay, let me run a test on Nucalm or Sensate or Apollo Neuro. So we built that into the app as well. It's 
So there's a lot of functionality there. But the biggest thing here too is just like training better self-awareness of what are the causes of stress and how do they impact you? How does it change your physiology? And then training resilience through self-regulation. And the best thing that we've seen, and this comes back to the biofeedback literature, is that we can condition a different natural habitual response to stress if we consistently train a natural habitual response to stress. So for instance, if every single time you experience a said stressor, let's say email apnea, and you decide every single time after that, I'm gonna train just for a minute, maybe two minutes max, just some breath work strategies. We see that over time, our body is going to condition that response to that event. It's gonna associate that event with a different response. So whereas maybe previously for the next five minutes after doing emails, your HRV was suppressed, the more and more you train, the more and more your body's gonna go into a natural position of breathing slowly because it's conditioned to that e email apnea. So maybe it only takes you 30 seconds to recover as opposed to five minutes. And while it may not sound like, oh man, five minutes of you know suppressed HRV compared to let's say 30 seconds, over time, this compounds, and we're talking about hours among hours, among days, years even of compounding stress that can start to be minimized if we just condition or train a different response to that stressor that we know is negative for us. Hmm. Yeah, email apnea, that's a new one. And um, <laughs> I think yeah, people probably hold their breath more often than they think like in various situations throughout the day like maybe some people hold their breath if they're you know about to talk to someone maybe their boss or whatever uh, or if they're like i don't know maybe choosing some food at a supermarket they're like stressed out about what to eat or if they're like resisting the cake for example uh, or if they're stressed out that there's some like gluten in somewhere in the air then uh, yeah like they may be going into this uh, stressed out state without even knowing it so yeah I, I think it's very good to first have like you know this psychological i don't know like bandwidth to um, first you know deal with it in the first place or be somewhat immune against it to a certain extent like if you have like this bigger buffer zone of emotional and mental resilience then uh, any kind of stress isn't going to affect you that much uh, either and on the physical side it's good to know like you know how whether or not you are stressed out so you can you know do something about it uh, as fast as possible yes yeah you know it's if if we train better autonomic control and if we train better autonomic resilience what people are going to find secondarily if they just simply focus on self-regulation is that they're going to find that their fuse is going to become a lot longer. And that's the biggest thing that I found for me is that I wouldn't say that I have a short fuse, but I think over the years of just compounding stress in school and startups and running businesses is that my fuse had gotten shorter and shorter. And I found that once it was lit, like it didn't take me a lot to explode or implode. And unfortunately, my kids will feel the wrath or my wife or maybe, you know, people who are around me. Uh, but I have seen it less and less and less. And if I think that's a huge component is that if we can better regulate our nervous system and have better overall self-control and emotional regulation, it's going to enhance our relationships. It's going to enhance our work. It's going to enhance cognitive performance. It's going to enhance our outlook on life and mindset. And I know that sounds 
really cliche, but it's not me just saying it. It's like we have the research to back this up that people, when they gain better emotional regulation and autonomic nervous system regulation, they feel more fulfilled and they feel less vulnerable um, around others. And I think that that in and of itself is an extremely valuable component that if people aren't training that, which I think it does get overlooked, um, but if, if people aren't training that, they really need to place emphasis on that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of the problems in modern society you know, could be fixed if people were able to uh, you know, deal with the stress better as well as be more resilient against the stress so they're not like triggered all the time and uh, they don't get anxious and angry at other people for sure yeah yeah indeed so uh, yeah i mean it's very i mean it's one of the best tracking let's say biomarkers to do to keep track of heart rate and the hrv so i'm a big uh, fan of that uh people where can people find hanu health and where can people you know get it if they want in, interested yeah absolutely i appreciate you. you you let me plug here um so no and, I, and I'll, I'll mention to, to your audience as well that we sent you one over but we found out that you had an android so you haven't been able to to use it yet uh we we decided to build on iphone platform or apple's platform first Android's coming soon. So we tell people like, don't worry, it's, it's coming soon. But uh, you can go onto our website, Hanu, H-A-N-U health.com. Hanu also is Hawaiian for breath. Um, so we're based out of San Diego, California, Encinitas, small surf town here in Encinitas. And, uh, and so for us, it was, uh, we're like, yeah, we got Hawaiian vibes here. So, and we're a breathing application in one sense. So uh, hanuhealth.com. Um, so if people are wondering, it's a $299 um, device. So it costs $299. Uh, however, um, you know, and that's, we'll give you, we actually send you the device for free and that's for 12 months um, of use of the application. What we always tell people though, um, here initially is that we have a pre-order special going on. So we're giving all of our pre-orders like a significant discount of 40% off. Um, so Seam, um, since we're on your podcast, you actually have a code. Um, do you mind if I mention your code? Is that cool? Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, Seam40, S-I-I-M-40, S-I-I-M-40. And that'll give you the, the device for 40% off. So we'll send you the device for free. Uh, and then you'll get your first uh, 12 months for only 180 bucks. Um, so we wanted to make it super, super affordable, um, you know, for, for anybody who's pre-ordering. Um, that doesn't last long. So I know we're recording this podcast in August. At the end of September, um, that 40% goes away. It's not that we're never going to run discount codes anymore. Uh, but we're telling people as soon as you can get in, get in. Because um, even for like you know, Black Friday or whatever deals, you know, New Year's deals, we'll never do anything. Um, that's close to 40%. Well, maybe close, but not at 40%. So it's the best deal we've got. Uh, so hanuhealth.com and you can get your device. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking for the Android application as well. And I'm for sure going to start using it and uh, just testing yeah, it out. Coming soon. <laughs> uh, well, Jay, it was uh, great talking with you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, yeah, the information that you shared is like super, super valuable. And uh, yeah, it's uh, glad to have people, you know, learning about their uh, nervous systems and uh, learning how to deal with any kinds of, uh, you know, physiological stressors and emotional stressors that they're dealing with. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. It's been a blast talking. Yeah, and uh, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn about more about you and your work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I do a lot of 
uh, I guess I would say I have my website, drjwiles.com. So D-R-J-A-Y-W-I-L-E-S.com, drjwiles.com. Also, I'm pretty active on social media. So on Instagram at drjwiles. Follow us at hanuhealth.com. Sorry, no, at hanuhealth is our Instagram um, account. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. So yeah, all those platforms, you can you can find me there and uh, update a lot on just stress, stress resiliency and HRV. Nice. And uh, my last question is, where can, or sorry, um, what's this one piece of advice or habit that you wish you adopted sooner? Yeah, you know, this is, this is a really good one because over the years I have learned so many things that are invaluable to me. Uh, but for me, um, it has been uh, finding and adopting and being um, bullish about having a morning routine. Um, something that I do every single morning, regardless of when I wake up, um, how the morning is going and other avenues. Um, it's just having a morning routine. And the one thing that has been extremely valuable for me is, is journaling, um, both gratitude journaling but also just open-ended journaling, um, kind of like the Stoics. So one great journal that people can, can, can look at that I use every day is Ryan Holiday's journal. It's just called the Daily, uh, the Daily Stoic Journal. Um, and it's an incredible way of just like taking everything that maybe I was processing at night and putting it onto paper to start the day and just thinking through some things and then drawing the vision for what I want the day to look like and then sticking to it. Mm, nice. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think it's very real. Like intent is very important. Whatever it is, if you don't have the intent to improve or get better, then uh, you know it's very unlikely that things are going to happen by itself. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was great talking with you, and uh, yeah, looking forward to your future work. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on.